0: On today's episode of Content Conversation, I'm speaking with Allie Berry. She's the SEO Director at Motley Fool. We're going to talk all about their content strategy, how it relates to SEO, and the editorial team, and how those two priorities are managed over at the Motley Fool. But to dive right in, Allie, I'd love to just hear a little bit of your background and what brought you to the Motley Fool.
1: Yeah, sure. I feel like with most SEOs, I fell into it by accident. <laughs> I actually started my career as a teacher. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. Great. I taught English in Japan for a couple of years, didn't have any money when I came back. And mm-hmm. a good college friend of mine had just started link building at an, an agency in Chicago called Performix. And that's where I also got hired and, and kind of learned SEO through the lens of link building and kind of how you need content to do link building well. And so I kind of learned content strategy through that lens of like what is going to to do well from the link building perspective. So I feel like that's different than a lot of people, which helped me differentiate myself. From there, I've worked a couple different agency jobs in-house, but I have a degree in economics. I have an MBA and I worked for Kaplan Financial Education, which is test prep for a lot of financial designations like the CFP or the CFA. It was kind of just a natural fit when I found The Fool because I have kind of the knowledge background and then they were looking for somebody to help start their content strategy on a sub-brand that they have called The Ascent, which is an affiliate strategy. So I started out at The Fool there and then kind of inevitably (laughs) got shifted to the the main part of the business. So now I oversee our kind of evergreen SEO strategy for our investing
0: content. What does the team structure look like at the Motley Fool under your purview, like as an SEO director? Is it a team of five? Are you also splitting that with some agencies that you're managing too?
1: Mm, Good question. We're kind of a siloed crew. I don't necessarily know if I would advocate for this, but it's kind of just the Fool in general. We're not Mm -hmm. uh, overly centralized. So I have a team of four that are focused on investing content, specifically investing in retirement. And then we have... I think we're up to 20 SEO people around the full now. We have like a few people in global and a couple people on the ascent and a couple people on the blueprint, which is another affiliate strategy. Three more people on Million Acres, which is our real estate strategy. So we're all kind of managing our own verticals. And then we all get together as practitioners and talk every other week, just kind of catch up on like what everyone's up to and share what's, you know, stories of successes or failures or ask for help or you know, just present on something deeper. So we try to like stay connected, but we kind of have a bunch of different people doing their own thing. And then we have some are content strategists and some are, I guess we only have like one or two that are more technically
0: focused. Okay, interesting. And then in past podcasts and talks that I've heard you do, you categorize The Motley Fool as news analysis and especially coming from Ascent and the affiliate vertical, and now you're more on investing. How do you balance that motley fool between that evergreen content versus hard hitting news and like where resources go? Yeah, good question.
1: I guess I define evergreen as something that is not inherently timely, so the goal with evergreen is to rank in the regular organic results, whether it's a featured snippet, whether it's your traditional blue links, carousels, et cetera. So our angle is always the kind of the how to's the about the knowledge more for the beginner audience, more often than not. We have a lot of pages that are dedicated to like individual financial sectors and kind of what that's about and what you should be looking for if you're gonna invest in that sector. But like that information doesn't change particularly often. I mean, not that it never changes, but rare. The focus of those pages is to stay relevant longer term. And then the news side, we have significantly more people focused on it really to stay in top stories all the time, which is their primary organic goal. And they're also focused on syndicating content Really, the goal with that content is to get as many eyeballs as possible. But like that content is only relevant for really a day or two. And so they're constantly creating new. So it's, you know, what happened today? What does this mean for
0: Tesla? You know, whatever. Why is this up? Why is this down? Do you ever see like a peak in the evergreen content when certain news topics also go viral? Like, so if it's something about Jeff Bezos and Amazon stock you know, do you also see things like how the evergreen, like how to invest articles also spike? It depends on what
1: it is. So that is definitely a thing. We will see some weeks are just bigger than others. One example, like renewable energy stocks is an evergreen page we have. And that has been, that went gangbusters right at election time. And I think that's interesting because I was like digging in, like, is this something that people are thinking about because of the election? And if Biden wins, like what are, would these be a good thing to invest in preparing for Biden to win? It's like trying to understand that psychology of what people are thinking. Other things like with COVID, like cruise stocks, people like on Google Trends, that was up like thousands of percent in interest. Like that's super fascinating. But then you, you know, think about it, and it's like people are probably wondering what's happening with these. And like generally, when something is super down, that's a good time to buy. So that makes a ton of sense when you kind of back out of it. So then, oh, we should probably have an evergreen page that talks about this as a vertical. So the news can definitely impact what we're looking at and, you know, yeah, what takes off.
0: You mentioned all the verticals have their own, you know, teams essentially, and you meet every other week. Is there also a lot of collaboration with the news team and meeting with them? Are they basically considered their own vertical as well?
1: Yeah, we are pretty separate. We do have a liaison between them, which has okay. been really helpful just because we're kind of hearing what their strategy is so different than ours, but it, mm-hmm. it is helpful. And like I manage the evergreen side, we have somebody who manages the new side, like he and I talk to, and it's we look at each other's data too to try to figure out like, do we need an evergreen support over here on this topic that's going well or vice versa? We try to collaborate as much as possible, but like their strategy is pump out as many new pieces as possible, whereas like ours is very much like update the existing. And it's just a very different philosophy. (laughs) Right. Definitely.
0: I have talked to other major sites, whether they're in the publishing space or just like a a large enterprise, like e-commerce business. And there's a lot of discussion around like who gets top billing in the navigation and homepage attention. And I'd love to hear how you talk about that at the Motley Fool, especially with those dual focuses of like evergreen and editorial.
1: I think with navigation, like top navigation in particular, there's not much of a battle there because, I mean, you can't put news content in the navigation because mm-hmm. it'll be a nightmare to try to maintain. <laughs> so yeah. it becomes irrelevant so quickly. So we have mostly evergreen pages in there. And actually, we spent a lot of time doing user testing. Like We identified the most important evergreen topics for you know a beginner or somebody who is currently investing or somebody who's thinking about retirement. And then it's for prospects, right? Because we are a, a logged in content experience for members. And so that's separate. Mm-hmm. And then we also have some links that are dedicated to like top stories. And it's more of a news feed. But by and large, Evergreen kind of dictates the the navigation. And we got some user testing to determine how to categorize everything and sort things, which was really useful just to see how other people would, like how users would kind of right. organize. I would recommend that. That was actually really enlightening because we think that we know the best way to organize, but we're way too close to it.
0: Is there anything surprising that came out of the user testing? Because I'll see sometimes like maybe across the personal finance space, many navigations across different sites can start to look very much the same. So it's like the drop down menu is like investing 101. And then you just see like four articles off of that. Like, is there anything that you all thought about that, or that came out of user testing, or that you just wanted to differentiate yourself from other competitor sites?
1: Yeah, we spent a lot of time on some of the language around. So investing, we have investing basics, and then investing 101. That is now Mm -hmm. where we started. I can't remember what we had proposed initially. But people got confused between because investing is broader than just the stock market. But we're heavily focused on the stock market. And so I think that was confusing to people and trying to differentiate the two a little Mm -hmm. bit, a little bit better. So that I think was illuminating just in terms of like, some of the things that people got confused about seemed crystal clear to me. I'm trying to think what else came out of like, in our stock market section, we spent, like news was another piece that I think confuses a lot of people. So we were trying to We had other links in here originally, and now we're down to top stocks to buy in 2020 and then stock market news, which is a a larger feed. I think it was, I guess it was just illuminating to see like what confused people (laughs) and like different accounts and people are not always right. Like sometimes it's like, well, that's not actually
0: accurate. So I can't do that, but. I've run into that challenge from a keyword research perspective of and trying to balance like brand expectations versus what the users actually search. And it's just like certain, I've done this more on the travel side, for example, where it's like Sonoma and Napa are names of counties, but also cities. And so when people are searching about wine tasting Sonoma, they have the expectation that they're going to go to just the city of Sonoma. But I had a wine travel industry client said like, no, like Sonoma is a county first. And I had to explain to them like, look, like, I understand that, but you know, this is what the user is expecting to get kind of thing. Do you have that challenge on, I mean, personal finances, you can go down the rabbit hole of so many different complex topics. So I'm sure you run into that frequently of maybe the subject matter expert on a topic has a certain idea of what the reader should come in understanding.
1: Yeah. I'm trying
0: to think of a really good example. <laughs> <It> definitely- <laughs> well, not we I understand probably attracts perhaps a more educated reader than, I don't know, I would say maybe a nerd wallet reader who's maybe a little bit more beginner. I'd
1: be curious where that assumption comes from. Because oh, interesting. yeah, it really, yeah. It, it depends. We definitely okay. are. I think a lot of our writers operate under an assumption that people have the investing basics down. But yeah. we're finding time and time again, is that <laughs> not true? People who visit our site come from a myriad of sources. And that's what's so hard is that if they come in from, you know, they found an article in their Apple News, they have no idea who we are. Or like Google Discover is another good example, actually. So like, it can be really hard to pinpoint where everyone's knowledge is and try to meet them where they're at. And so my team has really gone a lot deeper in the beginner content just because I think that we have kind of operated under an assumption that people have an underlying understanding. And like our personal finance side, especially like personal finance, getting out of debt is step one, you can't invest until you have enough money to. And we kind of think about it from that perspective of like, that's an even more beginner audience, right? It's like, these are people who need help getting their finances together, and they will be ripe for investing in the future. Hopefully. I don't even know how we got here. But (laughs) <laughs> but there's definitely yeah like there's definitely some mismatch and expectation just between writers and audience and like kind of what we're seeing but well
0: I brought up nerd wallet and I as I mentioned like the personal finance space is just I think especially in the past year blown up I've saw the next advisor and time partnership NerdWallet just bought Fundera this year. So it's just getting more and more crowded and more and more competitive. So what would be your recommendations on how to stand out in this space if you're a new site or thinking about launching and creating content in here? Good luck.
1: (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) so there's good and bad to it, but financial, so with affiliate in the financial space, and I'm talking particularly credit cards, but this is true of any financial institution, they are very, very picky about who they'll work with on the affiliate front. And so you have to have a significant amount of traffic and audience and authority for them to even consider working with you as a partner. So breaking into that space is really hard. You're not going to just start a site from scratch and, and expect affiliate to work out for you if you want to have the affiliate partnerships with like the big financial institutions. It's a crowded, crowded space, and it's only getting more and more. Like everyone's acquiring the smaller sites and and trying to become the big behemoth. And yeah, like the biggest competitor really wasn't even mentioned in your list, but Red Ventures own significant amount of financial sites, and they just keep acquiring new ones all the time. Definitely familiar with them. I think they were behind Next Advisor. The Points Guy and com. They just acquired, I believe, Lonely Planet, which is really fascinating.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that.
1: That just happened. Taking a step back and being like, why, why? But like, that's travel (laughs) content, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Right. So I'm sure they have plenty of
0: ideas of how to better monetize that digitally. Right. Especially with COVID right now, I'm sure that that whole sector of like editorial is very rife for like new thinking and revamping definitely. And then I still see like a lot of sites in like the chunky middle of this market. Like I'm thinking money under 30 is one that stands out to me that are maybe not the big guys, but right below. So Those sites that are kind of just like struggling to break in or make much headway, like, do you think there is even potential for them? Like, where should they even be investing their time? Is it just churning out more content?
1: Well, I think money under 30 is a really interesting example because like that's super niche, right? They've literally Mm -hmm. named it in the domain money for people under 30. So I think that's key. That's kind of how the points guy got big too, right? Like he literally is like, I only care about travel points. And I think I think that's key is finding the new kind of niche thing that makes you different having a completely different methodology, a completely different focus, but something that appeals to people, whereas like a lot of the big behemoths are very broad. Inevitably, if you want to sell, and you're one of those sites, like you're going to make a ton of money, because somebody is going to gobble you up. (laughs) If you want to stay independent and do your do your thing, like I think staying niche, and then yeah, just continuing on and figuring out different ways to partner using influencers could be a way to kind of differentiate yourself, like finding the right people like the points guy would be a great example of like find like really interesting travel influencers, right? Or like celebrities who are constantly I don't
0: know. Yeah, yeah do you do much influencer marketing at all for the Motley Fool? And does that inform link building strategy for your site too? Because sometimes I find sometimes when I talk to clients, they see them almost as one and the same, like a little bit different, but not really. Is that ever part of your internal discussions? Yes.
1: But I wouldn't say it's something that we have fully tapped into by any means, but we do have a lot of influencers within the fool. We have, you know, our own podcasts and our own fool live and like people have kind of gained their own celebrity just from our own huge member base. So it's more about trying to figure out, okay, how can we leverage that externally and work that through with PR link building as well?
0: Right. That actually gets to one of the questions I had around e. And there's even greater focus on you know the authority of the people writing on your site. again, as a big publisher, Motley Fool is already ahead of that in the sense that you've cultivated a really great staff of writers with subject matter expertise. But are there still conversations you're having internally of like how to leverage them even more
1: Yeah, and I mean, we're lucky. Because we've had so many writers stay with us for so long that, I mean, they've built up their own authority just by sheer volume and then syndicating. Like, because we syndicate, you know, they've shown up on so many different sites, which is actually like something you don't necessarily think about. But I wouldn't argue that syndication is great for SEO, but at the same time, it does seem to be pretty good for EAT. So that's, that's, I guess, another way to think about that. But we have certain experts who have certain credentials that we definitely want to leverage as much as we can, because that is something we're always thinking about. So if there's a particular topic, it's like, it would be great if somebody with a CFP would write this instead. That's definitely always something
0: top of mind. You mentioned for news, their whole focus is just get the content out and stay relevant and keep publishing. So I imagine from a technical SEO standpoint, that creates a huge amount of volume and just potential like site cruft over time. I'm sure you have a whole separate technical SEO team that's looking at that and monitoring it, but how are you thinking about scaling that archiving process? Is it something that you're regularly already going through content and like no indexing things?
1: We're not really no indexing things, but I have a newer strategy before our strategy was leave it all alone. (laughs) But as it turns out, if you're trying to do an evergreen strategy, it can be a little bit of a nightmare because I mean, you'll find so many articles throughout time that
0: have similar enough.
1: Yeah. And when you're writing for news, you're writing in a very short term mentality and you're not necessarily thinking about like this article is going to live in Google forever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're kind of just like, it's done, move on. And, but sometimes things do too well. And oftentimes it's because of links, right? Like we internally link to old stuff instead of the newer sometimes it got an external link that's just too good. Sometimes it's indicated too much, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it did too well. And so there are things we can do on our end to prevent that. So it's more like continuing to iterate with writers like you need to be linking to the most current stuff. You need to mainly be linking to evergreen pages and not news content that goes out of date in a hurry because the more the more you link to it, the more it stays in the results. So anyway, that's like a prevention measure, but then My team's been pulling, you know, pages that are ranking for the keywords that we're currently working on. And then we kind of have a decision tree on what to do with it if something's in the way. So sometimes it's as easy as just there's an internal link with this anchor text that is keeping it ranking. And it's that simple as just removing that. Sometimes it's more complex. Sometimes it's too similar in topic and it needs to be redirected. Sometimes it's not, and it just needs some tweaks. So we're kind of working through that. We... I would love to just redirect everything away, but like people actually having the historical record is also important. There's another perspective to be had there from like the writer portfolio perspective, the like, we like to see that, you know, somebody made a call in 2010 that proved out in, you know, 15 years later, that's
0: really hard. You don't know when that's going to happen. So Right. Yeah, that is really interesting to look at it from like the author byline perspective. And it kind of gets back to your answer on eat too. I mean, if it's kind of like balancing those two things, if suddenly you're redirecting a ton of stuff and all of your reporters now only look like, like they've been with Motley Fool for ten years, but there's only, you know, fifty or so published articles, then that's gonna Yeah, you know, not look great either.
1: Exactly. So we're try- we're trying to minimize the amount of redirects that we do. That's kind of a like, if nothing else, this is what happens. But yeah, there's, it's, it's a complicated process. And I'm proud that like, I've found a way to, to scale it to what we are prioritizing, and then just kind of leaving the rest alone. Because I mean, you could go down a rabbit hole for years and years and years trying to have every like, one page for every topic. And like, the reality is like, Google's not diversifying the results as much as they said they were going to. And so that's not always the best strategy.
0: Is there a tool or new tactic that you're increasingly interested in? You just found yourself using more and more this year. Surprisingly, not
1: not like an SEO tool. If anything, I've been using other tools, <laughs> and I've been reverting to old ways. Yeah, <laughs> Google Trends is becoming increasingly more important in keyword research. I search volume to me is ridiculous. It's ridiculous that <laughs> we still use it. It's completely inaccurate. I can definitely yeah. find examples of there's a monthly volume of this and we see more visits to our page in a month than that whole volume. Like it's just wrong. But it, I mean, directionally, it's helpful.
0: Do you find even at least like the click data that some tools are adding with search volume is helpful? Or even that you're just kind of like, whatever? Yeah,
1: I mean, I don't want to say it's all crap, but it's not as accurate as we'd all like it to be. But I think directionally, it's useful. And I think it's important to be consistent in what you do use. Otherwise, you're, I mean, HRS is just like 20% higher across the board than like SEM rush. And you just kind of have to like know that. But I do, Google Trends catches things that like search volume and keyword research tools are just behind on. And so if you see that something is trending, you're just going to have to trust that it's got the volume, even if it's not saying it does.
0: Well, even this year, I mean, obviously with COVID we've been looking at Google Trends a ton more because like, that wasn't a thing until March. So you do have to kind of just trust that, okay, if something has coronavirus or COVID appended to it, yeah, you do have to just kind of trust that it's going to probably be of interest. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So that's been a good, I guess, a good lesson in terms of just like trusting your gut over what a tool is telling you. So maybe my gut is the new tool. <laughs> that's a good
0: point. Yeah. But yeah, that can't I mean, ever be replaced.
1: It really can't. And I guess otherwise, I've learned some things this year just in terms of it's one thing to tell people like this is important and we need to make this change. And it's another thing to provide a visual. So Figma has been a good tool in terms of just like doing mock ups for people who don't have any design skills. So that's been, I think, a useful takeaway in terms of like trying to collaborate and get
0: projects through. Yeah, that is a great option. That's something that we're pushing even more of our clients to do is think about UX UI. And mm-hmm. it is nice to be able to send them like a quick mock up of like, look, this is this is what we mean when we say like, put your banner ad here, or that this drop down could look a little bit more elegant like this. It's so much easier to get buy in when they see that right there in front of them. Yep, exactly. I touched on COVID a little bit, but has that changed your 2021 outlook on a content perspective? Are you like doubling down more on COVID related content next year or?
1: I guess from the news side, I can't speak to what they're thinking about for 2021 necessarily in COVID, but I will say it's not necessarily that we changed our content. It's that all of the market sectors and all of the companies, everybody was affected by COVID. And so our coverage of it inevitably included COVID, right? So mm-hmm. it was more just us reporting on how every industry and company like is coping with it. So even from like the evergreen perspective, we launched a ton of sector pages right before COVID hit. And it was like, everything needs an update because you, know, you think that here's a solid page about travel stocks. Well, that just shifted. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what people, that's the information people need and to get it even into the blue links like, no, this needs to have a COVID update. So I would say it's always been top of mind. And then just topic mining for what people are looking for at the moment and trying to be relevant to them. I think Mm -hmm. it's important.
0: And then just finally, any other challenges or things that The Molly Fool is thinking about moving into 2021?
1: I think every company is probably experiencing this where it's like, how? Like, I mean, we kind of already went through forecasting for 2021, but like, how do you even guess what's going to happen in 2021? (laughs) Yeah. Anytime there's market uncertainty, it generally bodes well for us because people want more of the information.
0: Right. They're seeking that. What will happen? But what they're seeking, what you need to tell them is a little, you know, it'll be there, the demand, but exactly what it looks like for sure.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, thinking... Are we gonna hit a recession? Like a real I mean, are we one could argue we're in one, but like is everyone gonna run out of aid at the holidays? Like what is that gonna mean for everything? Mm-hmm. So all of like I guess external factors is definitely one challenge from like an SEO and content perspective. I think also just Google has said that their page experience updates coming in, I think, May of twenty twenty one. And so definitely looking at the mobile experience. We depend a lot on AMP for our news content, but the rest of our content's unresponsive. And so it's, you know, making sure that we have a really, we're thinking mobile first and making some some improvements before we get to May, I think is ideal there. And I'm curious what happens with AMP and Google in the news because they've come out and said that they're not going to require it anymore. If they give it too much preference, it sounds like that actually bleeds into some antitrust issues. So I guess we'll see. <laughs> you yeah. know, AMP is a tough thing to maintain you see great traffic from it, but conversion tends to be lower. And that seems to be everyone's experience with it. So I think there's some great advantage to not using it. But does that also punish people who aren't using it? I guess that's kind of the the question that it'll be interesting to see the answer to.
0: Yeah, that was two, three years ago, I feel like all of my clients wanted to jump on AMP. And we didn't have a good enough reason to tell them no, you know, because if everybody's going to be doing it, then you don't really want to be like the one lone site that's not going to be on AMP and you know not being a carousel or miss out on the opportunity. And, and then, yeah, it's like explosive traffic. But then when you do with that, if you can't even, you know, now at least they're allowing for advertising and those banner ads, but in the beginning that wasn't an option. So now at least I think, it's nice that you can add that, but it's not the best, you know, like brand experience still. They've intentionally basically said you have to strip all formatting yeah.
1: out. Like that sucks.
0: <laughs> yeah, no yeah, it's basically like serving everybody a Google Doc.
1: Yeah, experience. yeah, exactly. And it's it's a nightmare for developers. Something is yeah. always broken. Yep. <laughs> Anytime right. they do a code release, it breaks something inevitably. It's a nightmare. And so if the way forward is not that, I'm, I'm all for it. But I also think that that's going to mean we're all, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to mean in terms of like how we might have to shift our, our mobile experience to, to make sure that we stay on top. Cause mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, we'll find out.
0: If you like this episode, don't forget to leave us a review.